Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson. And as always, you can reach me with your questions at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. And here we are covering subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. The job of the critic was summed up pretty well to me by the writer David Mendelssohn in a New Yorker article titled A Critic's Manifesto. It was written in August of 2012, and in it he said, quote, The role of the critic is to mediate intelligently and stylishly between a work and its audience to educate and edify in an engaging and preferably entertaining way. He went on to say, if anything... You felt that their immense knowledge derived above all from their great love of the subject. Judgments based on knowledge, period. For all criticism is based on the equation knowledge plus taste equal meaningful judgment. The key word here is meaningful. He also said, like any other kind of writing, criticism is a genre that one has to have a knack for And the people who have a knack for it are those whose knowledge intersects interestingly and persuasively with their taste. He went on, even when you disagreed with them, their judgments had authority because they were grounded in something more concrete, more available to other people than feelings or impressions. Well, today's guest knows a thing or two about the subject. Adam Platt has been a contributing editor and restaurant critic for New York Magazine since 2000. With over 25 years in the magazine business, Adam has written for The New Yorker, The New York Observer, Esquire, and Condé Nast Traveler. He was the recipient of a James Beard Award in Journalism for Restaurant Reviews. Adam is also the author of the book of Eating, Adventures in Professional Gluttony, which was published in 2019. And I devoured this book over a couple of days uh, in the last few days. As a, as a lifetime restaurateur, it was enjoyable to share a seat at his table as he entertainingly, with authority and knowledge of subject matter, mixed with a dose of self-deprecation, captures the culinary zeitgeist as it was firing up on all burners. He winds the reader through the world of celebrity chefs, food trends, and ultimately the dreaded Yelp and Instagram culture, finally landing on, as he calls it, the end of days. Great read. I'm happy to welcome to Corner Table Talk today, James Beard Award winner, Adam Platt. Adam, nice to meet you, and thank you for being here. Thank you for having me on, Brad. Well, my pleasure. So, Adam, I kick things off with our short order questions, so I will fire a few of those at you. Uh, So, podcasts or music, what is in your earbud most of the time these days? You know, for me, it's music, but it's only because I think podcasts, I mean, I I listen to music uh, while I uh, work. um, And usually that music is soothing and instrumental, jazz or classical. Uh, podcasts for me require too much attention. So I can't listen to a podcast while I'm trying to write something. I certainly can't listen to a podcast uh, while I, uh, I'm at a restaurant. Um, I think podcasts are more for like when you're commuting or driving or, you know, and I, I've always worked at home. So my commute is uh, a nil. Now my daughters uh, listen to podcasts all the time. So 
So, so there you have it. So, you know, so when I drive, when I go long distances, when I'm on the subway, podcasts, otherwise music. Cool. I've, I've also found that they're uh, helpful uh, when I'm trying to fall asleep rather than having the TV on. Having someone talk in my ear puts me to sleep. All right. Okay. I'll try that. <laughs> you try that. All right. How about uh, morning beverage? What's the first beverage you have in the morning? My first beverage is a glass of water because I've, I've, I've read somewhere that you're dehydrated when you wake up. And then my second two beverages are two cups of coffee, which then dehydrate me again. So it's literally a cup of coffee. It's ground. Uh, there's a, a coffee coffee company called Counterculture, uh, which I like, which I think is only in New York. There may be other places. Uh, and the, and the, the bean is called Big Trouble. So I like the name of that. So I have cups, two cups of ground Big Trouble, a dash of half and half, and I got my water, and I have my other glasses of water. And then as the day progresses, I go to go over to more water and then green tea. But it's a coffee. Good mix. It's a good mix. Okay. What books are on your nightstand? Oh, my God. Books. I don't know. I've got a lot of books. I've got a lot of unread books in my nightstand. Um, I'll tell you the last book that I really liked and read. Usually I read – usually there are only two or three books a year that I really, you know, go nuts over. And I'm, I've been told uh, that I'm not a reader uh, by very literary people, although, you know, I'm a writer, so I, I'm, I'm familiar with all sorts of books. Uh, but the last book that I really liked and read cover to cover and uh, told everybody by uh, was a uh, biography of the director, Mike Nichols, mm. um, by a New York Magazine writer named Mark Harris. Uh, I, that was a great book. Now, on my bedstand, I could go. To, I, I like. Uh, I tend to like these sort of uh, commonplace books filled with, you know, different quotations and stuff. You know, different like sort of things that you can sort of glance at and then you know feel knowledgeable and well read and, and then then go to sleep. My so books of quotations. Uh, there's a, a writer named Dwight Garner who's a very good critic uh, for the New York Times. And he published this book of quotations, and I have that by my bedside. Uh, I've got a random cookbooks and stuff by my bedside, but it's a little, it's a bit of a mess, actually. <laughs> well, it's a good assortment. <laughs> I more and more, I'm reading on, uh, like I read on my 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 tablet, right? So I'm I, I really download a bunch of books, and I'm reading, you know, I, I read on my tablet. So like my my. My, my nightstand is looking more and more uh, like an old uh, a pile of old artifacts. <laughs> I still like the feel of a of a book in my hand, but I know the convenience yeah. of having your I hand. Buy like I, I like buying them, so I'll download them, and if I really like the book, then I'll buy them. Gotcha. Okay, your words, not mine, but on basketball, um, and as a as a former backup center, that's this is how you refer to yourself. But as a lifelong New Yorker, Knicks or Nets? Well, I'm sorry, this is a this is a quirk. Okay, so yeah, I did basketball was always the sport I loved to play. Uh, I, I grew up overseas. I was born in Washington D.C. I grew up overseas. And so I, I never really had coaching or anything. I'm, I'm, uh, if you read my books, so you know that I'm a large person. I'm like six foot six. I had a doctor who once said, if you're, you know, stand up straight, you're six foot seven. And so I, I played basketball, but I was never coached. And so I uh, was never very good at it. Um, but I've always been a Washington team sports fan. So I am, in fact, a Washington Wizards fan. 
and I'm a Washington football team fan, and I'm a Washington Nationals fan, and I like to go to Nets games. Like if you ask me, do I go to the Garden or I go to the Nets? I I, I think the, uh, the 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 new Barclays Center is a great place to watch a basketball game. So I, I, I prefer that. Uh, I don't really root for either of them because I'm a I'm a doomed Wiz fan. Gotcha. You, you want to talk sports? You want to talk sports in this podcast? My, I always, I'm a frustrated sports writer, so I, I talk sports forever. Talk we won't sports. do that, but I, I will tell you that I had Earl the Pearl Monroe on the uh, on the podcast a, a few months ago, and his book was fantastic. The Pearl. Washington Bullet. He's a bullet. He's a Baltimore yeah. bullet. You know, absolutely. Those were his golden years. The Knicks like to claim him, and he's a Nick, obviously, and he's great. But like, he really was a bullet. Okay, like I can yes, tell you he about was. Anyway, okay. All right, so we'll we'll move on. Um, all-time favorite restaurant critic. Oh, oh, I don't know. Critic, I don't know. Uh, all-time favorite. You know, the thing about it's just like writers. It's just like athletes. There's there's different generations of them, right? You know, you go through different generations, and if you you know if if I were to tell you. You know my formative my my, my formative uh, food writers. Um, they weren't really critics, um, uh, although we do in a weird way. The last twenty years have been a. I, I teach a food writing class at NYU, and so it keeps me in touch with, with, with what's being written out there. And we're really in the golden age of food writing. I don't know if we're in the golden age of criticism. Uh, but we're in the golden age of food writing uh, because food has exploded from a you know a small little uh, the, the kind of thing that people like you and I uh, would pay attention to sort of quirky people in these big cities to uh, you know food now is a is a, is a political topic uh, it's a environmental topic it's certainly a cultural topic and the writing has followed suit so you have this great rainbow of, of great writing uh, but the critics that I grew up the food critics. Um, you know, I'm an old, oh, I'm an old uh, New Yorker writer. So I, I, AJ Liebling would not be a food critic. AJ Liebling was a was in fact a media critic uh, for the for the New Yorker, but he wrote a lot about food. So I grew up reading him. Uh, I'm very partial to Alan Richman, right? Alan Richman, who uh, was a writer for GQ, uh, and Alan Richman, like like most food writers, had written about all sorts of different things during the course of his career. But he happened to be the restaurant critic or the whatever. He was the, the, the chief uh, expense account, uh, you know, food uh, correspondent for GQ in the 90s and the early aughts, which was the last great era of expense account consumption. And he's a very funny writer and he'd go around uh, reporting on all these quirky things. And so I, I, I grew up, I like Richmond too. So leaving Richmond. Uh, but there, you know, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of uh, 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 one of my favorite. Um, uh, they're, they're, anyway, anyway, there are a whole bunch. But if you, if you told me like a critic, I don't know. Critics tough. I mean, food critics tough. We could talk about food criticism. I mean, that quote you read at the beginning was very good about criticism. Like it's like you have to be around for a while. You have to. Uh, some critics are natural. Right, you know, they have a natural. There's a this sort of a natural. You, you could be a good critic. Like I, 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 like a lot of critics. Like I grew up. Uh, my father was a diplomat. I lived in Taiwan as a kid. Then I lived in Hong Kong. I graduated from high school in, in Tokyo, 
So I grew up looking at the world from the outside, essentially, right? DC is my hometown, but I, I really didn't live in DC. Uh, I grew up in, in, in this uh, cosseted world of obvious privilege, but it was also a world which wasn't mine, right? So I, uh, you know, we had a, a Taiwanese cook when I lived in Taiwan in the 60s. He actually wasn't Taiwanese. Uh, Taiwan in the 60s uh, was filled, uh, as I say in my book, with great chefs from all over China, all right? Because fancy chefs, uh, even unfancy chefs, uh, private cooks were not something uh, that the, uh, the Chinese communists who just won the revolution uh, were, 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 were proud about. I mean, these guys were not going to be able to get jobs in China. So many of them initially came to Hong Kong, a place like Hong Kong, but really Taiwan from where they they spread spread from there all over the world. So in the 60s in Taiwan, you could get all sorts of fabulous kinds of cooking, Peking duck from, from Peking, Sichuan food, dim sum. And so I sort of grew up in that world. And I grew up uh, looking at it not as my own, but sort of at a, 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 a remove. And so it was sort of, I think it gave me a natural sort of critics quality. And, um, you know, uh, I, think I, I think I was lucky that way. And I think critics also, uh, uh, and I can go on for critics, I can go on about this for, for a lot. You have to be, um, in, 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 when you're writing about food, um, food, especially restaurants, which is different from writing about books or writing about television or writing about movies, those critics all see the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. But when you're, you know, you're a restaurateur, you know, in, in a restaurant, uh, your experience is filled with all sorts of subjective variables, right? Uh, what time of day are you eating? Uh, is the chef in the kitchen? Uh, where did they put you? Did they put you in a crappy table by the by the, uh, the you know by the kitchen door, or are they treating you like a, like a fancy person? Yeah. Right? Um, do you like French food? Uh, do you like Japanese? So there are all these variables that go into it. And so I think you have to be uh, what you try to be is you try and be entertaining. You try and write in an entertaining way because most people are not going to these restaurants, right? It's, they're getting this sort of vicarious pleasure from them. Um, uh, whereas people actually are going to base their, you know, they're going to buy that book or go to that movie with the restaurants a little different. And you also try any critic, you try to be consistent, right? right. You try to have a consistent point of view, uh, because I think that over time is what your readers value, value, especially today, uh, when, uh, you know, the, the cliche is everybody's a critic and it's just, you have, you know, the information is coming at everybody from, from all over the place. So as, you know, for an old-fashioned critic, you just try and be consistent. All right. Well, you touched on a, a bunch of things there and, and several of which I'm going to come back to um, uh, in a few minutes in the, in, as we move along in the program. But the last one of these uh, short order questions, who past or present, Adam, would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party? Is this in food or is this like in, in everything? Anything you like. One person? Or four as many as you like. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> Let's say a couple. Oh, for, oh, for God's sake. Oh, I don't know. A dinner party. A few people. I don't know. Who? Uh, hmm. From history going back forever? It, it's your guest list. Oh, my God. Okay. You got to give me, I, you give me time to think about this. Uh, who would I like to have? You know, I don't know. Should I go to my sports? What a writer. Let's do sports and writers. Let's get Ali in there, okay? Well, you want him at any party, right? So let's get him in there. 
let's get, you know, Nora Ephron was. Sure, of course. A wonderful writer. I would love to have dinner with Nora Ephron mm-hmm. and Ali, like the characters from the '60s and '70s. So let's have Nora Ephron. Let's have Ali. So you got a lot of loquacious. You get a lot that 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 takes care of your conversation, right? That takes care of your conversation. No, no, no. There's going to be no uh, moments of silence there. Okay? <laughs> Nothing bad there. Now, I wouldn't mind having Jesus Christ. Why not? Why not? Just so, just so you can see, like, who, 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 who is this character? Yeah. Well, let's have him. So let's yeah. have Nora. Let's have Ali. Let's have Jesus Christ. Let's have one more person. Now, who would that person be? Some founding father? No. Martin Luther King? Maybe. Why don't you give me one more? I mean, that's a pretty good party. We need one more, maybe a great musician. Jesus Christ, Ali, Nora Ephron. <laughs> Abe Lincoln. That'd be hilarious. But that's imbalanced now. I mean, I could, you could have a podcast about this. We might spin off and do a do a, po- a separate podcast. So but let's jump in. I like your table. It's not a bad table. It's a good table. It's a good me, table. Nobody's leaving that dinner party unhappy. Me, Ali, Jesus Christ, Nora Ephron. And I'll think of the other. Well, I think we need a woman. I'll think of her. All right. We, we can double back. So um, I happen to notice that I know that you that you lived for a long time and your family lived overseas and in Asia. But I did notice that you went to a New England all boys boarding school. And I'm curious which one. Uh, it was called Middlesex. It was I went there for a year and it was a horrible place and a miserable experience for me. Uh, my parents at the time were living in, in Beijing, in China. Um, my, my dad was a, what you would call the China watcher, and he'd been assigned to uh, to open the U.S., whatever it was. It was not an embassy, but the U.S. diplomatic offices in Beijing, and they didn't have schools for me or my younger brother, and so we were shipped off to these boarding schools. I was just curious. I went to uh, Kimball Union Academy in uh in New Hampshire, which was also all boys. Yeah. 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 And this, and, and this Middlesex was about to not be all boys. Mm-hmm. So it was, this was the late seventies. Like I'm dating myself, but this was the dark ages of the old boy prep school, right? <laughs> especially the ones that were not the top echelon ones, the sort of middle tier ones, which is what Middlesex was. I mean, that it, the place is a mess, you know, there's like drugs everywhere. Uh, many of the teachers were later revealed to be, uh, you know, insane, uh, you know, uh, fiddle faddlers and the whole, the whole thing. Anyway, so yeah, middle sex. Okay. All right. So, sorry, very fancy now. Very, mm-hmm. A lot of well-rounded <laughs> rich kids there and a, a very, you know, it's, it's all good now, but I didn't have a great time. All right. So um, in your book, you often mention this expression that just cracked me up and I wanted to get your your description of what this uh, this this very um, visual description means the scowled scowling boiled owl look yeah boy owl look the boiled owl look was a is a term that was coined by my father right my father who was a professional diplomat uh, at the end of his career because he was a career foreign service officer, he tended to be assigned to the places. He was an ambassador in a few countries, but these were countries where uh, the big fancy donors who, who, who get the fancy ambassadorships in any administration, whether it's Republican or Democrat, uh, don't want to go, right? So he, these were places where uh, he was ambassador to the Philippines, he was ambassador in Pakistan. Uh, these are places where 
uh, you know, America is controversial and there's uh, often a lot of rancor in the air. And so he would coin this uh, face that he would put on when he was at a public event and somebody was, uh, uh, you know, uh, wh- whoever it was, whether a politician or people in the crowd were, were criticizing the Amer- American policy, right? So he'd say he would put on a boiled owl look, which was meant it's sort of a, a, your face would be motionless, but there would be sort of a frown on it, right? And your cheeks would be, your mouth would be downturned, and you just look like a boiled owl, okay? <laughs> and I found later on when I was a critic, because, you know, the thing about a restaurant critic is that, um, again, I, I say this in the book and, you know, I, I'm, I'm this tall, very uh, sort of a tr- obtrusive presence. Uh, very easy for uh, the restaurateurs, especially in New York, where the stakes are so high. And they're looking for you to spot you. OK, so they would pretty much know I was there and I would find myself. Not that I was having a bad meal or anything, but I would find myself uh, just sort of putting on a boiled owl face. Which for me is it, it, you, you, people who know me is they say that's not hard for you like that's your <laughs> that's your default face. It was basically sort of expressionless. You're not giving away whether you're having a great time or a bad time. Uh, you just it's, it's really sort of your business face. You stick your old business, it's your game face. And if you're a critic, boiled owl is like pretty much your game face. And it's also because like you're eating out every night or every other night. And you probably know this. If you get out of here, it becomes a job, right? Like you're, you're not, it's not every night, every night's not a party. And if it, if every night is a party at a restaurant, like you got trouble, you know, you're going to be hung over. You're not going to pay attention to what's going on. You know, you have to keep, you have to keep your head in the game. And so I found that the boiled owl face was something that was useful for me. Well, that's a good takeaway for me from your book, because I'm I am definitely going to use it. I'll try not to use it around the house in front of my wife, but uh, I, I will put that to use. Um, so, Adam, you mentioned that you you thought that the quote that I read up top from David Mendelson was a good one relative to uh, the job, the role of the critic, and that is to mediate intelligently and statuslessly between a work and its audience and to educate in an engaging and preferably entertaining way. And, and that your knowledge originates from a great love of the subject. Now, I know that you majored in foreign affairs at Georgetown, although later journalism, uh, your MBA at Columbia. But would you say that you... Uh, have a great love of food and dining? Uh, yes, I would. You know, I, I don't think you can do a job like this in, 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 if, if you don't. You know, you have to have that that spark, that taste for the world of, of restaurants and food. And, uh, you know, I, ha- I, I had that. You know, I didn't, I had never really written about food. I'd been a, uh, the last, uh, I, when I when I took this job in New York, I was a, um, a contributing editor, a contract writer for Con and Ask Traveler, which meant that I did I did these stories where I travel around and go to you know wherever Tokyo and and a lot of those turned out to be about foods, but I'd, I'd never written specifically about food. Um, but I always viewed food. Uh, both my parents grew up in New York City, so they both came from a city uh, with a rich restaurant culture, right? And they both viewed restaurants as a window into whatever culture you happen to be in. And so when we were in these luckily very food rich cultures in Asia and in, in, in Taipei, Taiwan, and then in Hong Kong where uh, it, uh, uh, we lived uh, for a long time, all, all five or six years in the, in the sixties and early seventies. 
my parents, especially my dad, uh, viewed uh, restaurants as a just to you know he collected them much like a New Yorker would, right? He liked to be a regular, so he always wanted to reproduce the idea of I'm a regular, and you'd walk in and they'd know you, and so he did that. And we did that in, in various restaurants in, 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 in China and then later in, yeah, in Hong Kong, later in Tokyo, where I went, went to high school. And so I, I've done that, you know. So mm-hmm. I, I, I grew up with that appreciation of, of food, uh, this idea that it's an extension of, of culture, this idea that it's a lived culture, right? That it's a lived anthropology. So the, me and my brothers, I have two large brothers, uh, you know, when we would travel, We'd much rather go to a local dim sum place, or if you're, say, you're in Paris, a bistro, or if you're in Rome, a pasta joint. We'd much rather go there than in the churches and the museums. And the, you know, those places have their charms, but you know, they're not alive, right? <laughs> Restaurants are alive, and this is the this is a if you're in New York, especially, but all over the world, it's just a, it's just a, such a pleasant, easy way to dip into the the, the, the culture of, of wherever you happen to be. So I think I brought this to the job. And I also brought, you know, I think there, when I started out, there were two kinds of food writers. This is still true, but it's, it's much more of a, as I said, it's much more of a varied tapestry now. But when I started out, there were really sort of two kinds of food writers. So the writers uh, who, who, who really kept their, uh, they paid attention to what was on the plate. Right, they're writing about recipes. They're writing about food. Uh, the, the great old critics used to do that. Craig Claiborne, who sort of invented uh, restaurant criticism uh, at the New York Times in the '60s and '70s, is really talking about uh, recipes and uh, technique, and he's describing in intricate detail, you know, the, the green peas and the quality of the souffle and all that kind of stuff. And then there are the writers uh, who wrote more about the experience of, of, of food, right? Uh, the guy I mentioned, A.J. Liebling, was one of those. Uh, another another New Yorker writer, Calvin Trillin. He might be good. Trillin might be good for my dinner. He's a very wry, funny guy. I mean, he's got some questions from Jesus Christ. And Ali. <laughs> Trillin would be good. Anyway, so Trillin, Calvin Trillin, uh, you know, sort of invented this genre of uh, just going around and talking about uh, he, he wasn't a fancy, he didn't like fancy food. He likes, you know, he, he wrote about uh, famously uh, the barbecue in his hometown of Kansas City. You know, he wrote about the, the Louisiana Cajun culture. He wrote about all that kind of stuff. But he was, a, he, he, if you ask Trillin, you know, uh, what, what, what's your favorite thing to cook? He's like, I don't cook. He didn't cook. So he's an, ex- these are experiential writers. So you had them and then you had uh, the, the, the more persnickety, more type A, uh, recipe-oriented, uh, uh, this is on the plate writers. And I always thought that if I was going to survive in this world, because I didn't really know a lot about cooking, I wasn't really a food writer. I was very much a food appreciator, that I would be in the, the second category, that I would uh, have to write in a way really like I was taking part in a world and I was traveling around in these strange worlds and I would describe them. So I'm, I'm really that kind of critic, right? I mean, you know, in food, I mean, it tastes good or it tastes bad, right? Is that so hard? No. <laughs> Usually, we all have our different tastes. We all, we, all, we all have our different, you know, styles and tastes and things mm-hmm. we like. It's not hard to, to, you know, the good stuff is the good stuff. It's not, right. it's not hard to, to isolate that and to, 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 to sort of talk about that. 
And so, but I mean, I, but I, I do think, though, and just to, you know, to stay on this subject for a moment, because it, it leads me to the question as a as a restaurateur, um, you know, having been impacted and, and you as well, of course, because media change technology is, is, you know, impacted this industry like it has others. But, you know, we've got Yelp now we've got Instagram. But, you know, the idea that um, knowledge plus taste equal meaningful judgment and right. um Yelpers, you know, it's an impression, but, you know, it's not necessarily based on any um, strenuous study or knowledge of subject, yet its impact uh, is real. I mean, the number of stars the place has can 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 affect the number of diners dining. You're right. I mean, I, you're right. I mean, we live a it's a cacophony. Right. But it is what it is. You know, it's like it's it's that's the world in which we live. Hot takes. Uh, Instagram's hugely influential. You know, the thing about Yelp, Yelp just for the everyday restaurant or the everyday business is hugely influential. I mean, critics are not in those are the critics, right? Uh, the, the lordly critics like me, there aren't that many left. Uh, you know, we're not going to your diner or your barber or, you know, that's that's Yelp territory. So it's hugely influential. Uh, I don't think it's that bad. You know, I think it's in, in a lot of ways. Uh, I mean, the, the whole Internet uh, digital phenomenon has changed everything. But one thing that you, you can't argue is that it really increased the sense of participation, mm-hmm. the sense of passion, and the sense of, you know, just, uh, you know, this, this, this supercharged sense that this, 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 there's a huge world out there and we all want to partake of it. So as a stuff field critic, I'm not going to argue against it, right? All I'm going to try and do is, is, is carve out a little place for myself in, in it, right? right? In this hurricane. And I think in this hurricane... Uh, that you know that that idealized description of the sagacious critic, uh, I, I think that's a great description. I mean, more and more that kind of that, that that person is a dinosaur, right? Especially now because more and more criticism is based on all sorts of factors, mm-hmm. right? They're based on all sorts of factors, and and the idea that there's some judicious, omnipotent, totally objective character, uh, a gatekeeper, if you will. Is one that's increasingly, um, I don't think, I mean, archaic is, a, is not, it's increasingly archaic because everybody has access to the technology, everybody has an opinion, and we all live in a very, it's, it's a very vocal world. But I think, I think that uh, the, the key for an old critic, if I'm reading old fashioned critics, it's really experience, mm-hmm. right? It's just experience. Like if somebody's been around for a long time, and especially if you've been reading them for a long time, um, it's just that sense of experience that can be valuable. But I, I also think too, Adam, that you know the um, for the for the diner or or music lover who's listened to or read reviews by Greg Tate or Leonard Feather or great critics such as yourself or Sam Sifton or Mimi Sheridan or Gail Green, it informs us about the product that we're experiencing in ways that we might not have looked at it on our own. This is correct. You're right. You know, that's the uh, that's the ideal role, and all these critics, those critics you mentioned, are great critics. You know, they're 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 great critics. I what I like to say, and I uh, Pete Wells is the Times critic now. We've had these discussions. New York has always been a disputatious place, right? Everybody has their opinions, and this is certainly true of restaurants, and it's certainly true uh, that critics and you're a restaurateur, so you you know this. Uh, restaurateurs have always accused. Um, uh, the critics of coming too early, right? When a restaurant is new, 
it's really a, it's a six month to a year period, right? It's a shakedown cruise. It takes a while to get everything going, especially now, especially in COVID, in, in, the, in the COVID nightmare. That's all been thrown to the wind. But pre-COVID, you know, a, a good a restaurant chefs would say, you know, it's really six months. Like, what are you doing here? So we're not even ready. But in, in in New York or in L.A. or wherever, you know, the the, the consumer's ready, right? They're spending their money. So you would go a month out, maybe two months out. And what you're writing about is a snapshot, mm-hmm. right? It's a restaurant. Again, you're not, the books are different. The movies are different. Those are set in time. You're, 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 it's a snapshot. You are trying to convey this snapshot. You are trying to filter it through your experience and your palate, which again, I talk about palates. Well, I really don't talk about palates. I think there's some people who have these great palates, but for the most part, it's like a golf swing. Like it, 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 you've got to work at it over time. It accrues over time. It's your specific palate, nobody else's. I don't think I have a great palate, but I, I have an experience of billions of these meals, which does amount to something over time. You filter it all through that. And you're giving, in the end, especially if you're a restaurant critic, you're making an argument. You're saying, this is my argument. This is what I thought. I liked it this time. And and, and uh, other critics have said, like, you know, people come up to you, especially the Times critics who are under huge pressure and always being told that they don't know what they're talking about. And, you know, people come up and they come up to me too. It's like, well, I went to, you know, blah, 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 that you gave five stars to. And, uh, you know, one good. And I was like, well, you know, I, I respect you. I respect that. Uh, did you order the cheeseburger? I don't know. Where they were. <laughs> right. What time of day did you go? And like, it is what it is. You know, it is what it is. So you're making an argument, trying to entertain. And you're trying, like, like you said, like you're trying to, be consistent, you know, yeah. offer a consistent yeah. opinion over time. Um, so just a, a quick little bit of background, because I, I really found your um, yours interesting. I mean, you graduated, as I mentioned, from Georgetown School of Foreign Service. Your dad was a Harvard grad. Uh, he is an American diplomat who served under two presidents as a U.S. ambassador. Your mom was born to a prominent family and was also quite accomplished in her own right. She held two degrees and developed a variety of programs for the United Nations. I know you lost her a few years ago. I think the same year I lost my mom, 2018. So sorry about that. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, your family um, embraced restaurant culture early. And I want to read, and you, of, of course, you spent time overseas and in living overseas. And I think it was in the, the, the latter part of the 60s, Vietnam War, there was a cultural revolution going on in China. Um, you know, just a tumultuous time at home and abroad. And I'm curious how that experience, Adam, affected your, your perspective on world stuff and food and restaurants and coming back to New York. And how, how did that inform you? Well, you know, I mean, you're, you're, you're probably the same as me because, you know, you grew up, you know, you grew up in the sixties and you grew up in, you know, you grew up in the seventies. You lived in the eighties. I lived in the eighties in New York city. You know, on the one hand it's tumultuous, right? On the other hand, it's just life, you know, like New York in the eighties, New York in the eighties was chaos. There was nothing compared to what it is now. You know, you go, you go to Times Square, I remember my dad, because we'd go back to New York because my grandparents still live in New York. My, I had a grandfather who got kidnapped in his car buying flowers on Lexington Avenue in the 60s and, you know, driven around the city. And everybody, oh, shook their heads like, oh, that, oh how horrible. But they, I'm not saying everybody got kidnapped, but all my cousins got mugged. Like, it just, that was New York. You know, the subways were, you wouldn't understand what the subways were like if you saw them now. People would be horrified. 
know, bombs were going off all over the place. Anyway, but it was just New York, you know. So that stuff, I don't know how that informs you. Uh, it's weird that the digital world now it creates a sense of chaos, which is actually re- re- weirdly much more immediate than it would have been in a time, in, say, if you're growing up in the 60s, which really was a chaotic cultural time, right? This is this is actually a chaotic cultural time. But if you're looking at the, at the sort of the tenor of the, of, of the cities now and then, it's really not close. I mean, New York was, I, I, t- I tell my, millennial colleagues and my zoomer colleagues who are like moaning about the world i said come on i mean come on you know in those days and my dad likes to say in those days you had these nuclear arsenals trained on every 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 anyway so i don't think that much informs you uh i think like i said the travel informed you know and early this early on uh, this sense of this vibrant uh, uh this vibrant world of food and restaurants and this vi- this sense that that the, these and, and this is now in this day and age you, you see it all over the place but it, this sense that these 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 dishes and these these culinary traditions were a huge part of the identities of the places where you were living and that you should respect them and enjoy them and pay attention to them right i sort of grew up with that sense and uh that that sense is is rife in a city like New York, which um, you know has it has a, in New York. What New York has, aside from great variety, because you have uh, you know you have a, you have the whole world is is in New York, right? You, you could find you can find all kinds. You can find Mexican food. You can find you can, it may not be the best Mexican and Thai food in the country. It may not be as good as L.A. or but you can find it, right? And it's all uh, in it, it's all within reach. And what you do have in, a, in an old city like this, same with Paris, same with Rome, is you have this uh, tradition of, of restaurants and of dining in restaurants and of eating out. Mm-hmm. And that dining culture, uh, you don't find everywhere. Right? Right. You, have, you found it in uh, what you know, I spent years in Tokyo uh, in high school, and I think I, I described that. You had it in Tokyo. You know, in Tokyo, you had this very, you had this sense of dining culture, which was really rooted in the neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still, it's still the great restaurants in Tokyo still are neighborhood restaurants. Some of them are, are discovered, and you know they become these destinations. But uh, you know, Japan is really a, 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 a patchwork of neighborhoods, and um, the dining tradition stems from that. You right. know, New York is still somewhat the same way. So I think that I took, you know, from my tumultuous childhood, I took, that's, that's what I took. And I also took, if you, you know, this, this childhood that I had, it sounds sort of interesting and fun, but it was also quite traumatic. You know, we were moving around all the time. I sort of wanted to stay in the same house and play football with my friends, and, you know, work on my jump shot in the backyard. But that never happened. So uh, uh, food was also something that we would find uh, comfort in. With the, um, you know, staying on dining culture, though, for, for a moment and, and back here at home, you mentioned a place um, called Giovanni's that you and your family patronized quite often. And you described the owner in a way that made me uh, reminiscent in, uh, about uh, how I grew up in the business. But, you know, my, I, I'm a second generation restaurateur. My dad opened his place in 73 and I wear that blue blazer. I go back with the blue blazer at the door, as you described uh, Giovanni and his special restaurant tour brand of hospitality. That's the restaurant world that, that I grew up in. And uh, I, I recognize that uh, that blue blazer and wore it for many years, uh, even though the locations changed over the years, I never moved very far from the door. And I'm curious, Adam, 
given your view of, you know, as a critic, but obviously, you know, you spent time in restaurants prior to that. Um, you mentioned another place, Neil's Diner, uh, that was also significant to your family. My dad's place was called The Cellar. It was very much a neighborhood spot where people came, the same folks came at the same time after work and pretty much ordered the same drink. And it was just that kind of an environment. Those places are few and far between these days, but not necessarily, we're not in a bad place, but we've certainly evolved. Where where are we now? We're, we're, we've seen celebrity chef you know, to the and more food cooking competition shows, I think, than any of us care to watch. But where where are we now? You know, I think you have to look at COVID and COVID has uh, it's just like this, uh, you know, it's just like this giant bowling ball, which is thrown everything up in the air and everything's still in the air. And you're going to see where it comes down. Uh, but certainly in New York, and that's really the place that I can speak of the most. You know, you've seen since since COVID, you've seen a, re- a return to neighborhood dining, right? You've seen a return to comfort, a return to simplicity. You've seen a questioning, and I've written about this, a questioning of the old gourmet model, right? In, in, in New York City, like it, what is ha- what, what 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 had happened? I think um, leading up to leading up to COVID, uh, the, the the sort of fan- yeah, because of because of the inter- internationalization of of the dining world. Right, you had these top fifty lists, which uh, were broadcast all over the world and digitally, and the top fifty restaurants in the world. And so you had this whole culture of gastronauts, right? These rich money travelers go around from one of these restaurants to the next, and because of Instagram and because of um, you know the the, the the speed at which this stuff travels, inevitably, and I wrote about this, these top fifty restaurants started sort of looking the same. Right. I mean, you have a there's a great restaurant in New York called Eleven Madison Park. It started out Eleven Madison Park, then became Eleven Madison. Uh, very talented, very ambitious chefs, uh, very savvy ownership, and they started out as a more of a New York restaurant, Eleven Madison. But as this uh, as this top fifty frenzy grew, uh, they kept getting you know facelifts and updates, and, and by the end of it, uh, the the place looked and it was populated. It looked sort of like a international hotel dining room and was populated not by New Yorkers, but by people from all over the world, which is fine, but also sort of impersonal, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you had that impersonal gourmet culture, which was dependent on that kind of, of you know, that that sort of highfalutin uh, clientele. And that's all disappeared right now, right? And those chefs have all uh, retreated and uh, they're very conscious that people don't want to spend all that money anymore, at least right now. They're very conscious that, that the, 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 the sort of primary comforts, the primary simplicity of, of a good meal, of a roast chicken, of a, you know. I mean, during COVID in New York City, uh, the bakeries were considered, and this is true all over the country, but they were considered, uh, you know, uh, crucial, uh, you know, they stayed open while everything closed. Mm-hmm. Right? There's a reason for that because, it's, you know, what's wrong with baked bread? Like, it's mm-hmm. the most comforting thing in the world. So I think we're in that stage now. And, and my... You know, there are all sorts of metaphors about COVID and the dining scene. One thing is it, it, it's done is it showed how important this web of restaurants, this sort of connected web of dining culture, how important it is, and not just to a city of, of, like New York, but to the to the country, to the to, to all of these countries, right? Because you don't you don't realize how much you miss it until it's gone. That's <laughs> certainly true in New York, right? right. You also don't know you're a restaurant tourist, so you know. Like I've been writing about this restaurants for, for two decades and 
you everybody says oh, it's a tough business you're living on a knife's edge like it's just it's just impossible it's so competitive and you're going yeah 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 and then COVID happens like out of the blue and you have a major restaurateur like say danny meyer who after a week says sorry i'm firing everybody i'm leaving i let go i've closed all my restaurants i've let everybody go right that shows you what a perilous world it is right and that sense of peril and that sense of of uh you know, that's, I, I think that's only made people love restaurants more. I think now we're in a period of, of uh, you know, it's really a period where, it, uh, and again, I'm talking about New York, you could use the metaphor of the meteorite blowing everything up. But the metaphor that I like is like New York is this vast coral reef with different you know, ecosystems on it, right? And that uh, COVID is like this red tide, this poisonous tide that comes through. And some of the old fish die, others run away, others hide, others adapt. And now we're in the situation where I think it's fair to say the tide is drifting away, right? Mm-hmm. So the tide is drifting away, and you can have these new ecosystems uh, grow up, and you can have these new styles. And I think that's where we are. And the one thing that's that's uh, that's more true than ever is that there's this great appetite for the restaurant culture, certainly in New York and everywhere else. And that has only, I think, increased during COVID. I would, yeah, I would, I would, I would also add, and I completely agree, and I like your 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 metaphor. But I also think, Adam, that the uh, you know the the pandemic really kind of peeled back and exposed the realities that you know those of us that have been in the business have been seeing coming for a long time, and it certainly accelerated some of those challenges of providing health care, you know, a living wage, and then the rising costs of everything. And do restaurant menus? How do we absorb that? You know, how do we? What what's going to happen to prices? You mentioned Eleven Madison Park. I know that recently they did away with their hospitality included fee. And I'd read a few weeks ago where they, they didn't lower their prices. So, you know, and some folks had an objection to that. But uh, I don't know if we're looking at a model that that still works. Do you do you think it does? No, there's no question. I, I think we're going to find out, you know, and, 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 and leading up to COVID, you had you were there's a series of revolutions that were going on. One of them was the Me Too revolution. Uh, you know the identity revolution. You had all this, all this stuff was 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 bubbling, and COVID just sort of ripped the top off of it. And uh, you know, again, we'll see what 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 happens, right? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, you before before COVID, you had the no tipping movement, right? And again, Danny Myers in front of that, and um, it turned out that uh, tipping, at least in this crazy country. Uh, is an integral part of how restaurants work. Now, it's undoubtedly true that tipping has, over the years, hidden all sorts of inequalities, racial issues, all sorts of, you know, the argument against tipping, I, I don't think you can argue it. Like, tipping is, like, not something you want to do. But it, it, it turned out that it was a much more complicated question than that. And everybody's, we're all back to tipping like crazy. And so, but I think you're right. It's a tough, you know, and now you have inflation. You have all these prices. I mean, I don't know if you're going to try try to eat a good steak in New York, it's going to cost you 70 bucks, mm-hmm. right? Now, hopefully this is not permanent, but uh, you know, it's, it, it, we are, we're in a period of upheaval. I think it's fair to say, and I wrote a whole essay about like my, like my last, like I do all these wrap ups and these, you know, year long wrap ups, year end wrap ups are a, a, a a torture for a working restaurant critic, right? They're torture for any critic. But for a restaurant critic, they're especially torture because it means that you're going to all these places. But anyway, I did a, I, I did a sort of a top 10 wrap up 
But basically, I, I wrote an essay about what, you know, how critics had, had, had changed during COVID. And I think we're much less critical, right? Many of them have done away with their star systems. Critics hate star systems. I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, critics view star systems as, uh, you know, just uh, sort of random stuff. I mean, we don't like star systems. Uh, and you're more of a part of the community, right? And more of a cheerleader. And I think we're in that situation. And I think we're all waiting to see what happens. And um, I, I think you're going to get a... You're going to get a different style of... Mm-hmm. You're, 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 there'll be a lot of changes. This is a huge... Uh, shakedown cruise and we're just we haven't seen uh, where it's landing but you're right it's a tough business yeah and it's especially tough in new york city and la well maybe maybe a kinder gentler approach but uh, i you know well i still think that the uh, the model uh, of operating a restaurant i mean i know firsthand from you know my last 10 years in la operating a restaurant in south la our labor costs went up 75 percent. i certainly couldn't offset that with price increases but uh, we can we can um we can move on so I, I wanted to touch on something else a gentleman josh Ozerski was a, an old friend of yours who passed away, unfortunately, uh, I believe in 2016. And um, you mention in the book, and I have to just reiterate, this book is phenomenal. I mean, even if you're not in the restaurant business, as I have been, it's just a brilliant look at what's happened with restaurants. And you're so funny and witty and your life has been very interesting. Having said that, you go up to the Cecil in Harlem for his memorial and you make the comment that Josh had anticipated the need for a broader, more inclusive restaurant world years before the rest of us, in quote. And Esquire had selected uh, the Cecil that year as the best restaurant in America. I don't know if that was true. I'm sure there's some debate. Maybe he was being provocative. But the point that you were making was that it was time for more inclusion. Now, you know, that was 2016, Adam. That wasn't 1950. You know? So I have to ask, you know, in term and as a person of color, a restaurateur, not a chef, I can tell you that I have had a challenge with making uh, myself known that way. Someone who we both have admired, uh, I read in your book, Jonathan Gold, was really the first restaurant critic, restaurant writer that made me feel seen as a restaurateur of color. And I'm curious why you think the culinary world and journalists in particular have been slow to recognize people of color in the industry. Uh, You know, I think it's because certainly in my, I'm a critic who writes about the upper end of the world in New York City. It's structurally racist, if you will. It's not just people of well, it's people of color in a broad sense, and so the the restaurants at, uh, that I go to, for better or worse, uh, the clientele is white and rich. It's it's New York City, mm-hmm. and so this is who you find yourself writing for. And I I I, I and I I probably would have may I would apologize for that. But that that is the structural situation a critic like me is dealing with, and. It's my fault that over time you don't you, you tend to get blinders on and you don't look outside that. Okay. And Ozersky did that. Ozersky also was traveling the country, right? But I think if you're like if you're in New York City and you're writing about these white tablecloth restaurants and you're me, a, a white man of privilege, 
and uh, all the baggage that comes with it, there is a, it's, it's hard to look outside of that. You really have to try and, uh, uh, you know, I find myself doing it now, you know, you really have to try to get, to get out of that, um, get, get those blinders off. The flip side is there's not a lot of restaurants like the Cecil, right? They don't open you know, chefs of that talent. They don't open all the time. But like this year, uh, there was a restaurant called Cadence, which was a southern, which was like a soul food vegan restaurant. In, you know, in the East Village, right. A young chef named, um, I think Shinari Freeman was her name. Freeman, anyway, yeah, okay. Hmm. Is her name. Anyway, you know, that's that's one of the restaurants that everybody's talking about, along with a lot of other different restaurants with, with, with women, women chefs from different backgrounds. But again... It's the kind, you know, when you're talking about this world, it is unfortunately still uh, the one that I described, Mm. right? I think that may be different in LA, maybe different in other uh, other cities, but in New York, it's it's still that that's still the 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 way it is, and it requires, um, you know, you 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 know, it's it's a it requires a different perspective. And I'm, I'm, I have been guilty in my career of not having that perspective and it's something, you know, I'm, we're working on. Um, and, I, and I have to say, you know, I, I, we've never met before and, and you agreed to do my podcast. I don't know if, if it was a conscious thought of yours that uh, this is a person of color. <laughs> Let me do their podcast. But uh, here we are talking about this, man. And I, and I think it's, uh, well, you know, you know, there's value in that. It's a, it's a problem. You know, and I, I'll be the first one to admit it. You know, I, when I teach at NYU, it's a we, we it, it's uh, something. It's a, it, yeah, it's it's an issue, and it's especially you know, in, especially when you're dealing with restaurants uh, w- where you have to pay a certain amount of cash to get. And again, it's not it's not the black community. It's all all different. It's 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 uh, it, it, it spans all sorts of different worlds. But I find you know, it, 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 when I the restaurants that I go to, even now. Day in and day out, the demographic changes, right? But the uh, the identity of the diners uh, too often does not. Yeah, I, I I wouldn't disagree with that. I think though that there is a growing community and and dining awareness uh, relative to the black community that maybe had not existed to the extent that it currently does. Shows like High on the Hog and the whole conversation around the African diaspora and the contribution of, you know, black food and black chefs and black culinary folks. I think as that conversation, Adam, gets louder, so will the customer base grow proportionately. And as, you know, the... the, Let's hope. hope. High on the Hog is a great... I've been teaching at that class for three, three, almost three years now. I mean, let's hope. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, let's hope, uh, I think, I think what you're saying is true. You know, certainly, uh, the appetite for that is there. And certainly, uh, you know, there, there are many young writers of color in the food world. Now the food world is attracting all sorts of, all sorts of diversity. Mm-hmm. And many, many of these writers are, are, are wonderful writers and, you know, their voices are growing. Okay. Yeah. And I think in the, in the restaurant, in, in the restaurant world, Two, uh, that's happening, although more slowly than one would like. Agreed. Um, all right, just winding down here in the closing pages of your book, The Book of Eating, the chapter titled End of Days, you describe a current scene in a new, quote, more fashionable version, end quote, of a coffee shop 
that took the place of an old favorite diner of yours in this way. Quote, a Brazilian-themed coffee shop where a new generation of headphone-wearing regulars crowd the uncomfortable wood chairs, peering silently into their laptops, sipping fair trade coffee from biodegradable paper cups. I mean, that sounds like most coffee shops in L.A. to me, but, you know, we're, we're close in age. We're both fathers. Would you say that our generation has done an adequate job of being stewards for the planet? Have we have we done okay there? Are we leaving our children a, a better place? Of course not. Come on. No. No. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I'd say no. The answer, that's, that's the easy answer. I mean, we're boomers. Boomers have a lot to answer for. I My kids make me answer for it all the time. So I think, no, we're not doing a good job. I will say in my vague defense that that, rest, that, that place, it replaced a, a, a favorite diner of mine called Joe Jr.'s. Uh, it's called the O Cafe. It's on the corner of 6th Avenue and 12th Street. I now go there all the time. I, ha- I drink, I sip fair trade coffee out of those cups. I buy the bowls of uh, avocado, uh, you know, healthy avocado. The, the, biodegra- the bowls are biodegradable. I buy this green smoothie shakes. I sit outside. The Joe Juniors never never sit outside of Joe Juniors. I sit outside at the tables. I actually I meet there all the time with people. It took me like three years or four years because I'm an old crusty boomer <laughs> to, to, to to get around to it. And I still have friends who don't go there. Like they call it they call it the overpriced cafe. Okay, but I tell them, listen, it's actually pretty good. And uh, so anyway, it's become it's sort of my new Joe Junior. And uh, you know. God bless. Okay. But yeah, the answer is no. Of course, we haven't done a good job. The world's in chaos and it's our fault. Okay. It's sort of our fault. I mean, I'm, I'm a, again, I'm a voice in the wilderness. I'm a dino. I wouldn't call myself a dinosaur, but I'm sort of, I, that is sort of what I am. Um, but, you know, the, uh, the restaurants are changing in all sorts of good ways. All right. I mean, there may be foreign ways to people like me and you because we grew up with certain styles. I love. I wrote a whole article about the old diners. I love old diners. But if you actually go and look at the food of the old diners, you might sometimes go, "Oh, hmm, I don't know. It's pretty good." Uh, but uh, the old cafes of the world also have their charms. So I, I, that's the other key about being a critic. Now you have to have an open mind and cast a wide net and uh, be appreciative uh, for what you have. Well said. The book is the book of eating. Our guest, restaurant critic and author. Adam Platt. Adam, thank you so much. I really appreciate you joining me. It was great to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Brad. It's a pleasure. So joining me now is my dear friend, Ambassador Shabazz, with our segment of the program we call How We Move. Ambassador, what's going on? Wow, that was uh, intriguing to watch, uh, listen to between the two of you. You know, ought to be a fly on the wall of the uh, family Platt household, uh, especially abroad, you know, in regards to their global consumption as young as a young family, travel and culture, food, as it were, and uh, how it shaped their palates and their social lenses, you know, as Americans living abroad and what that does to you when you come back home to the to the uh, to the homeland here, the mainland America, I'd be love to like dive in and you know interestingly enough as i was learning about adam platt and realizing he was oliver platt's brother whom i am familiar with as an actor i really like oliver platt and 
what was clear when I saw clips of Adam Platt and various book signings and, and interviews, as well as just now, is that there's a family gene. You know, on site, you don't see it at first, but then you get to see all of it. And the uh, their timing, their wit, glib, curiosity, discovery, delivery. And so it was really interesting to now kind of put the weave of what goes into how a person is raised. You know, it's not just meeting them as an adult in their professional forum, but who they were prior, that, that tapestry that brings them to this place. So it's really quite fascinating to listen to the two of you. Yeah, you know, one thing that, um, that I also found interesting, I, I, you know, and I didn't push too hard on this, but I'm curious what your takeaway is in that given the background of world travel, international travel, and, and actually living overseas, I just think that, that that would make one more open to various cultures and more curious to experiment and, and move around in terms of um, the kinds of places that you pay attention to. Yet, when I, we, we touched on the subject of diversity, he mentioned something very true that most of the places uh, that uh, are white tablecloth in Manhattan that uh, are of a certain um, price category are patronized primarily by white diners. And that that kind of limited and narrowed his scope. I was a little surprised at that given his background of travel. How did that strike you? It's not really as natural as one would think. The opportunity is there to utilize the breadth of what culture offers. But I knew a lot of diplomatic families where when their parents were abroad, they went to the American school or the British school abroad. And many did that for safety, continuity. They were going to jump from country to country. And it enabled. I also had friends who made sure their children went to the public school of the country. Right. So it really is what a parent chooses. So you can have stamps on your passport and not have traveled in or delved into culture, though you may have the mileage of culture uh, mm -hmm. of reaching those places. And so, yeah, it was very um, apparent that people get to choose that which makes them comfortable. I mean, that's okay too. That means the curiosity for variety of foods may not be as top of list as it would be for me. You know, for mm -hmm. me, I'm looking for the seasoning. Uh, I want to know where other people in that land dine and eat. I like the variety of foods and herbs. Different things intrigue different people. So the question is, you know, how Asian influenced he is. I would imagine more than not, just because you can't be immersed in that uh, part of the world where his father was a specialist, a socio-cultural um, specialist, and not have influences that are Asian specific. But when you get to choose the background that you want to immerse yourself in, that's what we do, you know? And, um, and it's not gonna show up the same way on the spectrum for everyone. So what I would do with someone like him is I would throw him in the back seat of my car and take him on a ride, <laughs> you know, so that he gets to uh, feel the comfort first of being in different spaces and not too far from that which is, you know, rings true to his, his or her, whomever it is, culinary taste. You know how I like to curate those kinds of things. And I know that I can't hand over everything at a, pace 
that uh, would suit me. I have to make sure that everybody on the delegation or at the table um, can definitely dine and feel the same camaraderie and enjoy it. Yeah, you know, and it occurs to me too that the 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 exposure that you receive when you have been singled out for what you do, especially in a profession where you are one of few, um, it's very difficult to gauge how many people that then influences in terms of a potential career choice. And if if someone is not reading that there is such a thing as a black restaurant tour, say, how does one aspire to be that? That's not everybody's role, though. You know, what we have to do is highlight the ones that are doing that. And we on Corner Table Talk, you are identifying many of those in the range in the in the uh, in the uh, let's say the diaspora of culinary. Mm -hmm. And I think it's essential. Uh, one would hope that people have the same interest in bringing forth all varieties. It's not going to happen. And so what we get to do is dive into where the person is and feel his or her breadth where they are, mm -hmm. where, they res where they reside and get to feel that in a hundred, you know, uh, in a hundred percent or 360 degrees where they lie. And then we continue to add on to that, that spectrum, the variety. It's, it's just going to be that different all the time. We hope people have the same barometer of consciousness, but it's not going to be so. And it's not even a good or a bad. It's just different. People are in different places. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. his, his own wit and honesty in his space and place is quite defining. And so it makes me want to go to where he is when, when I'm curious about the book of eating and what that means from his perspective. Now, do I get to, to put some turmeric on it and throw some 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 extra seasonings in there? Uh, yeah, I do, you know. Um, but curious to know what shapes the lens of another is is just yeah. as intriguing yeah. as hoping they reach out to your lens as well. Absolutely. And I tell you, he would be someone I would totally enjoy. You know, when we hit yeah. next time we hit the city, we're going to invite him out with us. And I and I'd love to experience a restaurant uh, dining experience with with him at the table. It, it would be yeah. tremendous Even and that, hilarious. That, and that I was going to say that Platt personality is really what was very defining for me. And um, as much as what's on his plate is just him at the head of the table, hosting that meal. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So how are you? What's going on? I'm great, actually. You know, I when I think about people and food and sometimes, you know, it's like you want to put on your best and go out. And then there are times I think I just want to, like, pull a, a chair up to the table and throw a bib on and, and put my elbows on the table and just really chow down. And I come across... You know, some of these places where, you know, you have like a full meal in a bowl or full meal in a wrap. That to me is also exciting as long as all the flavors are there, you know. Mm -hmm. And there's a place in Harlem I learned about called Jean John, G-I-N-J-A-N -G Cafe in Harlem. It was like a West African fusion of flavors. And I can't wait to go, mm. <laughs> you know, you know. Um, 
So that's one of those things because while people are talking about the new Harlem, it does bring back the global, um, let's say menu of foods that I hear are popping up all over the places, uh, all over the place there in, um, in New York, just as much as a, the mango seed in Brooklyn or the chopping block in Houston, Texas is another location. I'm just ready to not worry about what I'm wearing to a place, remove my mask and dive in. Boy, that sounds good to me. So tell me the, the name of the place again in Harlem, because I'm I'm making a note of this. We're, we're going there. What's it called? Jinjan, G-I-N-J-A-N Cafe. It's in Harlem. Elbows on the table. Elbows on the table. Casual. <laughs> That's right. And just learn a couple of, you know, terminologies and how you, uh, you're not going to put salt and pepper on your food. Well, so certainly sounds like they have the flavor that we love, Ambassador Shabazz, and how we move. Thank you for that little insider tidbit. And uh, good to see you. I will see you soon. Maybe at Jim Jim. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.